You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly on Bloomberg Radio. All right. We're really happy to kick off the last hour of the show today with Jay Lippman back with us, co-founder and president of Ethic. Joins us on the phone from New York City. And back in June, we talked about what was going on in the world as it related to a reckoning that we hope is still ongoing in a very meaningful way. We're talking about equality a lot today with our Equality Summit in terms of racial injustice and institutionalized racism. We're also talking a lot over the past couple weeks and continuing to engage our efforts around the climate. So we want to focus on that today with Jay. It's really nice to have you back with us. It's a pleasure to be back. Thanks for having me. So, Jay, talk to us about climate here because, you know, this is something we spent a lot of time actually with our Green Festival last week here at Bloomberg, and we dug into a lot of the investment aspects of this. But I wonder what your take on it is because this is at the core of what you're doing with Ethic, right? Tell us your approach. Of course, of course. And I think that, you know, the way that we are seeing investors consider the climate conversation, the climate crisis right now is really a topic of risk, right? And the kinds of risks that investors can actually proactively mitigate from their portfolio if they know what to look for with regards to certain information data that is out there about companies. And we can break that down into two primary risks, you know, whether that is physical risks or transition risks, which I'm I'm happy to go into more detail about. Well, Talk to us a little bit about that in terms of how, because I'm always curious when we talk about this, how do you look at a company, like we did a story earlier about how Amazon doesn't have a a plan to solve emissions. Uh, The company gave itself about two decades to reach zero emissions, you know, but it's like, can it do what its customers want it to do and also put the climate first? Can it put both constituents, if you will, first? And I do wonder when you look at a company, how do you decide whether or not they are hurting or helping or, or taking the initiatives to be better when it comes to the climate. How do, you, how do you make an investment ruling on something like an Amazon? It's a fantastic question. What you're talking about specifically is what you would consider to be a transition risk, right, which is mm-hmm. this risk associated with, you know, the change in economic um, incentives um, as they transition to a low-carbon economy. And as, you know, increasing consumer sentiment shifts towards, a desire to have more sustainable companies they're buying from. And as companies recognize that, you know, potential uh, regulatory changes in the future may actually, you know, put a price on carbon, they're recognizing that they have an incentive both to keep their consumers happy as well as keeping an eye on what their bottom line is going to be. Because, you know, if these regulatory changes do happen, if a price to carbon does occur, which we believe to be is an inevitability uh, at a certain point, you know, they are, they want to be ahead of the curve and they don't want to be caught uh, incurring those increased costs when a price is put on, you know, what it is that they're ultimately releasing in the, in the form of emissions and carbon through what you're discussing. So, Jay, you, you brought up a really important point, which I think is consumer behavior. And, you know, we've been talking about this also in the context of equality. And in fact, part of the conversation we're going to hear later in the hour with John Winkle-Reed and Ursula Burns addresses this, this notion of where the economic pressure is ultimately coming from. It's coming from consumers who are ultimately demanding more of the companies that they buy from. But it also needs to come, many would argue, I would be among them, that it has to come from the institutional investors as, as well. Are we seeing pressure from both sides? And, and is it equal? Or how would you describe it? 
Well, I think that you are seeing, uh, you know, a two-pronged approach because, you know, it's, it's impossible now to ignore what is going on in the climate perspective. Right? Mm-hmm. We've got fires on the West Coast. We've got a historic hurricane season forming uh, in the Gulf. And, you know, the conversation about whether this is a topic that needs to be addressed is now over, right? It's now a conversation of how do we address this? And the consumer sentiment around that has shifted towards people recognizing that their purchases do make a difference. And that's why you're seeing certain companies coming out and getting ahead of it, right? You had Microsoft come out talking about going carbon negative. You had Delta coming out saying they were going to be the first carbon neutral airline. And those first movers, we believe, are going to benefit from being, you know, proactive in this sense. But from an institutional investment perspective, you are seeing, you know, not billions of dollars flow into more sustainable investments. You're seeing trillions of dollars as investors that are investing for, you know, they're not investing for 10, 20, 30 years. These are investment portfolios that are looking at the true long term, 50 years, you know, the generational investments that are saying we don't want to be overly exposed to companies that are not being considerate of a changing climate and the risks that, you know, essentially come with that. So if I can follow on that, on that, excuse me, what turned that institutional spigot on, as it were? Was there a catalytic moment? Was it the, the kind of accumulation of a lot of the things that you've been alluding to where you just can't ignore it anymore? Or was it they needed to see performance? Like what happened? Well, the, you know, the performance question is so interesting because if you do look at this as a risk mitigation strategy and as these kinds of risks become more pertinent with companies having their supply chains disrupted, having their you know, physical assets put at risk, having an increased risk of stranded assets as a result of a changing climate, you're actually going to see these companies that are not taking climate change seriously get affected. And as a result, they are not going to be great investments yeah. when you know, they are overly susceptible to drought or their supply chains uh, start to fail. And so I think institutional investors are really recognizing that you know, they want to invest in a more sustainable way to achieve the goals of you know, driving a more sustainable future, but they also need to protect that capital and they need to be thinking as long-term investors um, and in doing so, recognizing that by mitigating risk, you're probably uh, insulating the portfolio from uh, you know, the kind of climate uh, think, uh, events that we're seeing globally. Jay, what about the other problems, big issues that face us? And it's something we've talked about with you before, but you know, the racial inequalities um, that are out there in our society, how do you think about that? I'm curious what you're hearing from investors about how they are applying that to and thinking about that when they make investments. Of course, uh, and it's, it's, you know, it remains a huge priority for so many of our clients. And one of the interesting things you know, in this conversation about climate as well is seeing the interconnectivity between mm-hmm. these issues. Yeah. Right? And you're seeing on the West Coast now with these, obviously, these unprecedented fires, you know, one of the immediate side effects that everyone is talking about is the immediate climate migration that is going to be a factor as people lose their homes at kind of unprecedented numbers. And one of the you know, natural effects of that is that, you know, it is the most vulnerable in society that are going to be most disproportionately affected by that if they cannot afford to relocate their lives, if they cannot afford to rebuild their lives, and if they are essentially forced, you know, into unprecedented times for themselves. Uh, and that does disproportionately affect people of color as a result. And so, um, you know, as as our investors think more about um, you know racial justice investing, I think that the entire climate conversation does factor into so many elements of it, as well as other factors uh, like criminal justice reform and whether companies are profiting from a 
systemically unjust and racist criminal justice system, uh, which companies are positioned to, you know, uh, honestly benefit from that system, as well as certain industries like predatory lending that disproportionately predate upon or affect people of color in the country right now. Yeah, and it's interesting, you know, on the on the climate point and the climate uh, exacerbating inequality point, you know, Jay, you mentioned earlier in the conversation the hurricane season in the Gulf, and, you know, it was 15 years ago, and I was involved in some of Bloomberg's coverage around it, when Hurricane Katrina obviously came on shore in Mississippi, it was a little less well covered, but certainly when we saw what Hurricane Katrina and the levees breaking ultimately did to New Orleans, the disproportionate effect it had on poor black people in the Lower Ninth Ward, and also the economic response to that, I think, is so interesting to think about as well in terms of what get re- what gets rebuilt and what doesn't, and who is able to essentially show any measure of resilience. And, and I have to think that that's part of the equation, too. Of course, of course. And, and you know, uh, a, a very sad part of all of the displacement that is created either from uh, the flooding, either from the fires, is that, you know, small business owners, people that yeah. are dependent on the community element of, you know, for their kind of economic support and the economic uh, sustenance, you know, that's wiped out as the entire community is, is pushed out and, you know, does not necessarily have the financial resilience to return to that area. And especially, as you said, not to do so quickly. So when you think about what we're increasingly calling, and, and we had the the creator of this concept on our show yesterday, Peter Atwater, the economist, th- this K-shaped recovery, mm-hmm. you know, I, I feel like investors are sort of of, of of many minds here that it is maybe easy, as it were, to sort of invest in, in that upward part uh, of the K in tech and other companies um, and and maybe ignore some of the the opportunity or maybe ignore some of the uh, implications of the other part of the K, this widening gap. Um, how do you continue to sort of make sure that you and, and on behalf of your clients are sort of making the right sort of investments when some companies are doing quite well amid all this? Well, I think that, you know, one of the considerations we have to make is, you know, there are obviously those uh, larger companies that are going to benefit from the displacement of the market and from consolidation and that will continue to grow at an accelerated rate through COVID and through the rebound. But you've also got to look at the companies that are kind of systemically positioned to benefit from, you know, honestly uh, extracting from the communities in the country that are the most vulnerable. Yeah. Right. So as we look at industries like predatory lending that benefit most when people are financially destitute and uh, are honestly in desperate need of financial support, that's when they are strongest, right? Because they're able to position themselves as, um, you know, a, a provider of uh, financial services that does exploit its clients, right? And there's uh, industries like that that are going to make the situation honestly dramatically worse for those people that will not be part of the economic uplift, especially if they are not, uh, you know, uh, asset owners, and if they're not um, holders in some of those companies that are going to see the largest expansion in their share price, um, because they're not, you know, honestly participating in the um, the kind of economic uplift because they don't have investment portfolios, and so you will see that disparity grow even further, either from that corporate activity or the fact that you know a lot of people in in the community don't actually have um, ownership of equities that will grow. Uh, from the the benefits of the uplift. Jay, quick question. Just got about a minute left here. How does your how do your you know algorithms you know how do they see big Wall Street banks? 
amid all of this? It's a great question. I think that, um, you know, it really depends on how you actually judge the, uh, the various practices. And I think that, you know, looking at things like carbon risk, carbon exposure, um, you know, isn't going to be material when you're looking at a financial institution. And so, you know, deciding on uh, whether to invest in a company based on um, how much carbon it emits is not going to be applicable to an institution that you know, doesn't create carbon as, as part of its uh, business activities. Uh, and so you look at the various ways that that um, bank kind of uh, operates with regards to things like financial systems risk, um, whether or not they are participating in or profiting from predatory lending, mm. right. uh, and look at the things that are relevant to their, uh, honestly, uh, their business practices and see how they connect to uh, either, you know, either climate conversations, racial justice conversations, or other things that are connected to the factors that we consider. Well, it's so fascinating. Um, and I know hopefully you'll come back at a, another date so we can just kind of continue this because it's just um, kind of the investment world where it's, it's exploding, these kinds of areas. Jay Lippman, co-founder, president of Ethic, joining us on the phone from New York City.